from the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now available in your grocer's dairy case. Ask for yours today. This is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Living on a viral video, John Bon Jovi's New Jersey anthem is back on the charts after 26 years. Also back, the Sam the Record Man sign. We'll speak to the son of the man behind Canada's music industry icon. 50 years of Companions, Daleks, and the music of Doctor Who. We'll pull out a sonic screwdriver to rewind time. From the They're Not All Dead Yet file, Monty Python is back. We'll look at what kept the troop from regrouping sooner. I love the tag for the tour. One down, five to go. <laughs> Plus, how to get your article published in Rolling Stone magazine. Why we need to get back on the iTunes page. And why Bjork needs a nerd in her life. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. Yes. Particularly if you're a fan of Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer. A couple of things about Bon Jovi. First of all, there was a, uh, a viral video that I think was first posted in 2009 that has suddenly become um, even more viral. And uh, as a result, and it's very manipulative the way it was uh, reposted and passed on. Under the rules by which charts are compiled these days, they had no choice but to count all these viral plays and put the song back into the Billboard Top or Hot 100 chart. It's just, it's a bit weird. Oh, are you, are you suggesting that something nefarious is going on and, and John Bon Jovi has uh, figured out a way to get himself back on the charts? No, no, no. It has nothing to do with him. It has something to do with uh, the per- person behind the video who managed to repurpose the video somehow. It has nothing to do with him. He's just a um, an innocent bystander in this whole thing. But it's, it's, it's a really goofy situation. It just shows you how... Um, the charts can be gamed, even unintentionally, by what happens on the internet these days. So the dancer's name in this video clip is Jeremy Fry, and uh, apparently it was 2008 or 2009 that he had actually done this lip sync that uh, first made the rounds, and then it got repackaged again uh, by Utrends TV. Who is Utrends TV? Well, that, that's it. That's the whole point. This this Utrends TV seems to be the organization that takes these old viral videos and somehow repurposes them and turns them into these giant hits. And nobody knows much about them. 1.7 million Facebook v- posts and 12 million views on YouTube. Yeah, so something's going on here, and we're not really sure what it is. Well, Billboard magazine has picked it up as well. Oh, well, uh, yeah, I know. It's 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 again. It's you know this is this it's a dead song or for for chart purposes it's a dead song. It's an old viral video, yet somehow it was turned into something, and this is actually a pretty good. Um, thing to investigate it was turned into something and and now is actually impacting um the music industry so uh you know these things are just it's it's unintentional consequences of something so it spent four weeks on the charts in february of 1987 it's back in the hot 100 now after more than 26 years and 94 percent of its hot 100 chart points are because of streaming yes an 11 percent uptick of 4,000 downloads sold 
So it's not actually translating into a, a lot of downloads and purchases, but it is just getting a lot of eyeballs or earballs, as the case may be. You know what the other story about John Bon Jovi this week, right? No, what? No, okay. Well, this, this broke on Sunday as part of the NFL coverage. He apparently wants to buy the Buffalo Bills and bring them to Toronto. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa hang on. Bon Jovi is neither a Buffalonian nor a Torontonian. Why does he care? Because he's good buddies with the people of uh, with the people of uh, MLSE. I'm not surprised, though, that there might be an interest in that because the Buffalo Bills and the Toronto Argonauts really sort of have this um, place in our minds. And to bring an NFL team to Toronto would be a big deal. Let me. OK, let's go through it. John Bon Jovi has is a major football fan at one point, And he still might own um, a piece of uh, an arena football league, I think, in Philadelphia. He would really love to be an NFL owner. However, the problem is John Bon Jovi, even with all his wealth, is only worth about $300 million. The Buffalo Bills are currently owned by Ralph Wilson. Ralph is 95 years old. He won't be long for this world. And he has stated that he's not going to sell the team while he's alive. Instead, what's going to happen is he's going to pass the team along to his children. However, his children have no interest in maintaining ownership of the team because of the huge estate taxes that they would have to pay on the team. In fact, what would happen is that they would have to borrow money to pay the taxes so they could continue to run the team. And that would mean getting this NFL franchise would be this gigantic financial burden. They don't want to spend all this money on loans just to inherit the team from their dad. So they have said that once dad goes and once the team has been passed on to them, they are going to sell the team for the highest to the highest bidder. And estimates are that that'll be somewhere around a billion dollars. So they'll be able to pay the estate taxes and have a whole bunch of money left over for themselves. All right. So let's assume that the team is going to sell for a billion dollars. There's another problem. The Buffalo Bills have a long-term lease with Ralph Wilson Stadium in Buffalo, in Orchard Park. That lease runs till 2020 and is worth about $400 million. So any new buyer will either A, have to keep the team in Buffalo until 2020, or B, buy out the lease for $400 million. Okay, so we're at $1.4 billion U.S. dollars. Another problem. There is no place for the Buffalo Bills to play in Toronto. The Sky Dome is too small by NFL bylaws, and they would have to build another stadium, which would cost at least $600 million for a bare-bones thing. But nobody builds a bare-bones thing anymore. They would have to spend about a billion dollars for a stadium. So right now, we're at $2.4 billion, not counting how much it would cost for the new ownership group to actually run the team. So at $2.4 billion, that's way beyond John Bon Jovi's uh, pay grade, way beyond. However, he is friends with the guys at MLSE. They have lots of money. They confront him some money. Well, hold on a second. NFL bylaws state that only uh, uh, a corporation cannot own an NFL team. A single person a single owner has to have at least a 30% equity stake in the team. For bon, uh, John Bon Jovi, again, 30% of $2.4 billion can't be done. Well, it's just impossible. So he can't, well, no, it would be 30% of, uh, of $1 billion. So he, his entire net worth would have to go into purchasing the team. Not a really smart thing. The, uh, a corporation can own the stadium, but they can't own the team. So, all right, so there's, uh, that takes care of the $1.4 billion maybe. However, again, we come back to this whole issue of John Bon Jovi only being worth $300 million. 
where does he can't possibly be the majority owner. So where do you find a single majority owner with that kind of coin in Toronto? Well, a big stakeholder in MLSE is Rogers Communication. And what they they're always looking for content for their uh, for their sports channels and for their TV channels. It would be, you know, they would buy the Buffalo Bills just like they bought the Toronto Blue Jays and have a piece of the Toronto Maple Leafs. So what you do is you get Edward uh, Rogers, Ted Rogers' kid, to be the front guy and pony up the 30% because he's got about $6 billion, apparently. And you make John Bon Jovi a minority stakeholder and make him the face of the team. So there you go. I've just completely uh, deconstructed the Bon Jovi NFL thing for you. I don't know. It doesn't sound like Bon Jovi's NFL dream has a prayer. Okay. Nah, let's, let's stop. Let's stop there. No more <laughs> living on a prayer jokes. You know what else is back from the 80s? What? The Sam the Record Man sign. Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, I wrote about this a little while ago, and I said something to the effect of um, Ryerson wanting to get out of its obligation to post a sign someplace. And then I got a, a, a very nice email from somebody at Ryerson um, uh, Public Relations who said that despite what you read in the media, it was always in their plans to uh, resurrect the science someplace. No, oh, you know, I, I don't know about that. But you know what I do know? I've got Sam Snyderman's son's phone number. Shall we give him a call and find out how it all went down? Yes, please. I would like to know what's going on. Hi, it's Bobby. Hi, Bobby. It's Michael Hainsworth and Alan Cross at the Geeks and Beats podcast. How are you? I'm fine, guys. Appreciate you calling. So give us a sense here as to what went down, because Ryerson's telling us that they always had the intention to put the sign back up. What's the real story? The real story is they're still obliged to put the signs back up uh, on the original site. Um, There was a decision made at council last month, and um, for all intents and purposes, the original deal is still in place, and it's being reviewed by city staff and um, I've always been on record to say that uh, the sign should go back on the original site, and best I know, that's what's going to still continue. Well, it should, because the signs on Young Street were iconic in the sense that anybody who ever came to Toronto for the first time and went down to Young Street, one of the first things they'd look for was the spinning signs. And and I am one of those people. I I was in Toronto for two days before I went downtown, and I had to see those signs. So it's it's part of the fabric of of, of that strip, and I, and I and I think that they should be preserved and and uh, considered to be, um, you know, of historical value. So, Bobby, what you're saying is that they need to go right back to the original location. They can't move them somewhere else. They can't put them inside in a small display. It has to go right where it was. Well, they they had two options. Um, one was to put it on the original site. Uh, either on the south side of Gould or the west side of Young, um, or they had an option to put it on the library, which is a building which is um, directly behind the Young and Gould corner. So they they still could do that. As far as I'm concerned, that that's really the only options, uh, which is the agreement that Ryerson actually made with the City of Toronto. Tell me a, a bit about the history of the sign itself. Did do you recall how it all came about? I was part of that, actually, and I know it very well. The family purchased the store. Um, it was, it was, I think, called Collis Furniture, which was at 347 Young Street. And originally, my father and uncle, who were the original owners of the store, had a couple of interesting elements on the, on the fascia. There was windows on the second floor, and on one side of the 
windows, they had a thermometer. And on the other side, I think they had a, a clock. That was around 1961 or two. Then around 1969-70, they spoke with the Markle brothers and Jack and Sam Markle um, were very involved with neon and art. And they had an art gallery uh, which produced neon artworks. And so they met with the Markle brothers and uh, at their factory and there was a small prototype that was produced of this you know, massive spinning record and the problem was trying to f- determine how you were going to get it to spin and they originally had incandescent lights in it probably a thousand incandescent lights and it was a nightmare you know they had to ever replace them so they went to the neon and there, was, there wasn't a, a lot of difficulty in, in producing it once they decided to go ahead and the record companies were interested and it was very uh, unique for the time and uh, had created quite an impact. So that's the history of that. Hmm. And what year was that? That was 71, pretty soon after that. Do you have any idea what the, what the original cost was? Around $20,000 or $30,000 of that time. You know, that was considered, you know, an incredible amount of money for a sign. Now, was that just the one sign? Because ultimately there was a, a mirror image of it as well that was put up beside it. The original sign was a 347 Young, and then when we acquired the property of 349 Young, we put up a sign that was, as you said, a a mirror image, but it was just slightly smaller because the fascia was a little bit smaller. So will both of those go back up on the fascia? They go together. So there's the the two spinning signs, and then there's the Yes, This Is The Sound, The Record Man, um, uh, logo, and then there was three um, letters on top with in incandescent bulbs, uh, individual letters that spelled Sam, S-A-M. Right. Now, this sign is currently being stored in a tractor-trailer somewhere north of Toronto, correct? Yeah, I, I read that. Uh, the sign company that works for Ryerson took them down and is uh, storing them. Okay, keep it safe. Um, I'm looking forward to having it put back up because, again, I think it's an important part of the cultural fabric of Young Street and the music community, the music history of Toronto, and uh, I'm glad this this is going to work out the way it is. Do you think this would have gone back up if it wasn't for the music community coming together? I don't think it would, quite honestly. Um, My brother and I, you you know, Jason... Um, were sort of caught off guard, just assuming that um, the signs were going to go back up because of the you know agreements that had been made, and uh, the community you know led by Nicholas Jennings um, and the, and the music industry um, were able to um, produce so much support and, and get so much uh, support from Canadian artists um, that. Um, uh, it really resonated with the councillors. There, there were a lot of uh, a lot of debate that took place at council last month, and one of the key points that were made by many of the councillors was how many of their constituents were writing in and saying, you know, this has to to go back up. And a lot of times, individual councillors in their writings, you know, get to make decisions. In this case, though. The entire council felt that they had to have a voice because people from all over the city and well, the country were writing and saying, you know, this is such an important part of the fabric of the Toronto's culture. I talked to an awful lot of people and they were mad. They were genuinely angry at the prospect of these signs never being put up again. Um, it would be hard to find too many people, you know, that would disagree with that. You know, I, you know, I was sort of thinking a little bit, you know, before you called about, you know, well, what can I say that originally has some 
you know, merit and and the thing that you said, you know, right at the start was like so relevant is that, well, the signs just really look nice. You know, they made you feel good. You know, it's sort of, you know, there aren't that many symbols in any community, you know, which are identifiable. You know, these signs were really so important and things which um, people really look forward to seeing and, and showing uh, visitors from out of town. So I haven't heard an argument as to why they shouldn't shouldn't go up, really. Bobby, great having you with us. Yes. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Got a question about music, love, that suspicious rash? Ask Alan anything. Call 323-319-NERD. Hi, it's Janet calling from uh, just outside of Toronto. I have a question for Ask Alan Anything. You guys did say anything. I have a bucket list wish to one day get an article published in Rolling Stone magazine. I am by no means a professional writer, um, just a hobby writer, love music, and have a good story idea, I think. So I want Alan's advice on how I would go about contacting someone at Rolling Stone to make this possibly happen. Thanks. Wow, that's an interesting one. There are about 12 full-time people at Rolling Stone these days. All the other writers are freelancers, and uh, they have favored freelancers. I know one named Steve Knopper, who lives in Colorado, and uh, every once in a while is commissioned to write a 2,500 or 3,000-word uh, item for Rolling Stone. But he's been writing for quite some time. And uh, when you're writing for Rolling Stone, you're writing for the big leagues. So you have to have some kind of pedigree, some kind of portfolio, some kind of track record as as a music writer. And uh, it would be very difficult to break into that at that level. What you need to do, and this is what I tell people who want to be music writers, is that music writers write. And they write and they write and they write as they continue to uh, hone their craft and to find their voice. And uh, every once in a while, you know, send it off to uh, a blog or maybe one of the uh, the smaller magazines, see if they publish it. And if you can develop some kind of a track record, some kind of publishing record, well, then maybe it's time that you, you can send something in unsolicited to Rolling Stone, who gets lots of unsolicited articles all the time. And uh, maybe they'll pick it up. That's That's basically it. Nobody, there's no one route to go you just got to be a really good writer with something to say and i can imagine again to your point if you've got a track record of getting things published rolling stone would be more inclined to publish your article that's right now i know my friend steve in colorado spent an awful lot of time and many many years writing many other things before he was engaged by rolling stone you got to remember that this is a magazine that published hunter s thompson that published tom wolf so The bar is pretty high. The bar was pretty high, by the way, for the Doctor Who 50th anniversary special. Okay, I'm going to let you talk about this because as try, try as I might, I couldn't. I, I never was able to get into Doctor Who. I mean, I like a good Dalek once in a while, but as for the story itself, I just don't care. Ah, well, see, this is the problem, is, is the story has now changed. And here's a bit of a spoiler uh, alert, so if you want to get your podcast app and skip uh, two 30-second increments, uh, I'll save you uh, from uh, if you haven't watched the 50th anniversary special yet.
they changed the basic premise of the Doctor for the 50th anniversary, wiping out 50 years of the show. So they rebooted it? How? Well, one of the basic issues for the Doctor was that this Time Lord, he was the only Time Lord left. And he was the only Time Lord left because he killed all the other Time Lords. Not in a malicious way, but there was this time war between the Daleks and the Time Lords themselves, and the only way to end this war, which would have saved the universe from the Daleks, because the Daleks would have beat the Time Lords and then gone on to every other civilization in the known universe for all of time, and taken over them as well, he intentionally pressed the big red button to nuke the entire galaxy thus consuming both the Time Lords and the Daleks and ending the Time War. Well, in the 50th anniversary, we learn that, in fact, no, he hadn't. He thought he had, but two other doctors, because they all, all their timelines crossed, uh, the three doctors got together and figured out a way to save the home planet of Gallifrey, and therefore all of the Time Lords themselves. And so one of those deep, dark, angry sides to his personality no longer needs to exist. Okay, that's interesting. So the guilt has been removed. In the meantime, you report on 50 years of Doctor Who music. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating because uh, the, C, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, they needed to create all of these weird sound effects for the TV show. And it was up to the Radiophonic Workshop to uh, figure out how to make these space-age sounds. And they were always experimenting with the newest and the latest and the coolest electronic gadgets. And this goes back to, obviously, 1963. So they were playing with synthesizers and sound generators and all kinds of stuff since then. Uh, um, and then, of course, you know the, the Doctor Who theme, which is one of the most famous television themes in the world, um, has been you know, sampled and, and, and used uh, a, a billion times by all kinds of people. I guess the best version of it is uh, the Time Lords in the band. And they had a, a track in 1987-88 called Doctor and the TARDIS. factmag.org. It was uh, Delia Derbyshire and Dick Mills, who were technicians at the BBC's in-house sound studio. They called it the Radiophonic Workshop. The British always have a nice way of twisting things. Yeah, can you imagine? I mean, this is the BBC 1963-1964. This is the, the, the staid BBC where everybody who read the news still had to wear a suit and tie because if you look good, you sounded good. Yes. And can can you imagine them setting up this well it would have been a laboratory it would have been a real workshop where you went to work every day in a suit and tie and your job was to come up with cool sounds for doctor who and all the other bbc radio and tv properties i thought it was a theremin they had used but we had discussed this in season one of the geeks and beats podcast that in fact it wasn't it was a series of simple harmonic waveforms and test tone oscillators that were used for calibrating equipment in rooms not actually creating music that was used to create this swooping melody in the lower bass line they adjusted the pitch of the oscillator banks to a carefully timed pattern 
Yeah. See, so this is the kind of stuff that you had to do before modern synthesizers were invented. It's, it's, it's cool. They did a lot of really neat work, really cool, brown, groundbreaking work. And now for something completely different. Also from across the pond, the Monty Python reunion's on. I think I might go. You might go? Is, is it an, an actual uh, event? I thought it was they were just going to re- redo the TV show? or, or, or... No, 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 no. Uh, the O2 Arena, July 2nd Oh, in London. And if uh, right now it's a one-off thing, but I've heard rumors that they may do some kind of a tour. Um, and it's actually, you know, I think the, the most expensive ticket price is 90 pounds. Tickets went on sale Monday, uh, November the 25th. I'm going to wait till my wife gets home and, and see if we uh, if we want to do it. Because I, I would love to go because I was a Python fan. I mean, I, I, I my, my father hated them because he thought it was just, you know, it's just silly and stupid. All right, stop that. Silly. I'm a bit suspect, I think. And my dad would rather watch, you know, Benny Hill. <laughs> Which wasn't silly and stupid. <laughs> Listen, there's no accounting for taste. But, uh, you know, you got five of the six guys left. Uh, Graham Chapman died in 1989. Um, all, everybody else is in their 70s. Uh, most of them are doing quite well. Uh, John Cleese still has to pay off a $22 million divorce settlement for wife number three, I guess. Are you serious? Yeah, no, that's why he went on tour. I went to see John Cleese uh, earlier this year. He did his last chance to see me before I die tour. And it was a it was a ninety ninety minute uh, presentation of, of of his life with a bunch of audio and video. And what was interesting is, he, of course, he went, did a lot of the Python stuff, right? But he did not mention Eric Idle by name for the entire performance. He barely referenced him. And I had heard that there was a lot of bad blood between some of the Pythons and Eric Idle because of what he had sort of done with um, with, with some of the the, the the ensemble's material, with Spamalot and a few other things. But apparently, you know, money talks and everybody's made up and, and friends again. I'm looking at the Daily Mail, which wrote an article about the falling up between the two. And it, since it's become... Since it's come from the Daily Mail, you know, you got to take it with a grain of, of salt. Um, their relationship dates back to 1965 when they first met as students at Cambridge University. But apparently they are feuding after it was revealed uh, that uh, Idol had cut his former co-star out of the Python-esque hit musical Spamalot and boasted he would not even take 13 million pounds to be married to the star. But apparently things have been settled because this, uh, okay, the O2 Arena holds about 20,000 people. I've been there. So um, how we're going to get five 70-year-old gentlemen to be as funny as they were uh, the last time they performed on stage, which was 1982 at the Hollywood Bowl. Which was excellent. Albert Cross! You got wafers with it? Of course you don't have fucking wafers with it, you cunt! fucking Albert Cross, isn't it? Stop that! Stop that! Stupid! Which was very good. And everybody's going to want to see, you know, the the classic sketches. You're going to want to see the four uh, the the four Yorkshiremen. You want to see the parrot sketch. You're going to want to see uh, Minister of Silly Walks, Argument Clinic, all that sort of stuff. So it'll it, it's going to be rather interesting in the sense that uh, the audience will probably know the lines better than the players themselves. <laughs> you can just imagine when they get to that point in the dead parrot sketch with Michael Palin, and and John Cleese is called on to say, "This is an ex parrot." The whole audience is just going to scream, "This is an ex parrot!" It's going to be, it'll, it'll be a, an interesting uh, per- performance. I have a funny feeling, my friend, if you didn't already have tickets, you're not getting them.
Uh, you know, I know, I know. But, you know, if they do go on tour, there's just too much money involved. I mean, these guys want to, um, you know, Terry Gilliam's doing okay. Uh, Eric Idle's doing okay. Uh, Michael Palin's doing okay. John Cleese is doing okay. Terry Jones, I'm not so sure about. He talks about, you know, doing this 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 event to, to uh, pay off his mortgage, which I find hard to believe. But, um, you know, there's just, there's, there's so much money to be made from this. I heard at one point that this could be a 100-date tour. That would be an awful lot for guys in their 70s. No offense to anybody in their 70s, but to tour and do this over 100 dates would be, I mean, for anybody, it would be, wow. Speaking of making money, it's time now for the Geeks and Beats update. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. We did have a co-producer last week, but prior to that, it's been deadsville as far as the Geeks and Beats updates go. We have not had people willing uh, to uh, open their wallets wide and uh, contribute to the show. And I think there's one good reason for that, aside from the fact that the show basically sucks. It's that we haven't been promoting the fact that you could actually get your name read on the show. Yeah, and that's probably true. Listen, we're approaching the Christmas season. Um, by the time you hear this, uh, all the Americans will be getting ready to, uh, to, to celebrate Thanksgiving. It's the start of the, uh, the shopping season. Listen, what better gift would there be than to give someone the opportunity to be a co-producer of this show? And when you are a co-producer of the show, the album cover, the artwork that we use for that particular episode, which includes your name, will be emailed to you in high resolution, suitable for framing, and hanging in your parents' basement. I didn't know that. Yes. Oh, well, very good. Yes, we will do that. Meantime, we also could use a good boost of the ratings. So we would appreciate it if you would tweet about the big show, uh, Facebook us as well, and share with your friends and family and, and all your relations uh, about why this is the world's most popular podcast. The other thing, though, is you pointed out on alancross.ca that there is a very good reason why we need to be banging down iTunes' door to get back on the front page. Of the, of the, uh, of the podcast page. Yeah, I know. It's, it's uh, I can't, what, what's the percentage? It's it's huge. It's like being on the end cap of a grocery store, a grocery store. Exactly. And I don't think that iTunes charges for that sort of thing. Um, 41 percent of the U.S. record business in 2012 was specifically iTunes in the United States alone. 63 percent share of digital sales, according to NPD Group. And so if you want to get something sold, whether it be a song or a podcast, you've got to be on iTunes. Yeah. Now, I, I, I do know the head of iTunes Canada. I will uh, send her another note. Meantime, before we go, have you seen Bjork explaining how television works? <laughs> it's just, here's what we'll do. Rather than me describe it, there's no music involved here. There's no copyright involved here. Why don't we just play out with Bjork? She's a cute cuddly little tiny thing she's very elfin i i have met her is she is she as nuts as she seems to be i think she is one of those artists one of those people who live to create art and is probably pretty wretched at everything else she actually thought that television would genuinely screw up your brain because a poet told her you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. We should probably just play it. Just, just play it and think about holding Bjork in your arms, rocking her to sleep and telling her 
it's going to be okay. It is Christmas time and I'm sitting here by my TV. I've been watching it very much lately because I'm on a holiday and I've been seeing all those programs about all sorts of things, about Icelandics being very uh, happy about Christmas, very gay and also very serious and spiritual and also seeing Icelandic uh, comic people making jokes, which they are very good at. But now I'm curious. I've, I've, I've switched the t- TV off and now I want to see how it operates, how it, how it can, can make, put me into all those weird situations. So it's about time. This is what it looks like. Look at this. This looks like a city, like a little model of a city. And all the houses which are here, and streets. This is maybe an elevator to go up, up there. And here are all the wires, these wires. They really take care, take care of all the electrons when they come through here. They, they, they take care of that they are powerful enough to get all the way through here. I read that in a Danish book this morning. And this beautiful television has put me, like I said before, in all sorts of situations. I remember being very scared to it because an Icelandic poet told me that not like in cinemas where um, the thing that that, um, throws the the picture from it uh, just sends lights on the screen. But, But this is different. This is millions and millions of little screens who who send uh, light on you, Um, some sort of uh, uh, electrical light, I'm not really sure. But because there's so many of them, and in fact you're watching very, very many frames when you're watching TV, your head is very busy all the time to to, uh, calculate and put it all together into one picture. And, and then, because you're so busy doing that, you don't watch very carefully what, what the program that you're watching is really about. So you become hypnotized. So all that's on TV, it just goes directly into your brain and you stop judging if it's right or not. So you just swallow and swallow. This is what an Icelandic poet told me once. And I became so scared to television that I always got headaches when I watched it. But then later on, when I got my Danish book on television, I stopped being afraid because I, I read the truth. And that's um, the scientific truth, which is much better. You shouldn't let poets lie to you. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com.
The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.